an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity very much, uh, especially since uh, I'm still somewhat of a young upstart as a psychologist. I've only been out of graduate school a few years myself. Sometimes I deceive myself and think I'm still a lot like a graduate student, and then I look in the mirror, and uh, especially at my hairline, and I realize that some years have gone by, and I start to despair about that, and then my son, who is uh, 11, cheers me up by saying, Dad, you haven't lost any hair, it's just that your forehead has grown horns. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that endearing way, so I can't really get mad at him for saying that, but anyway, I'm glad to be here, and, and as Dr. Borio said, much of what I'm going to share with you tonight does come from my dissertation work, and uh, we're going to go very deeply into attachment theory and attachment research because I think it's very helpful for us to understand ourselves as human persons. Um, and so with that being said, let's just kind of launch into it. I've got a lot of material. Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to mention, is that I will kind of divide this into two halves. We're going to talk tonight primarily about attachment theory and some of the basic research that's been done uh, on attachment and how it affects human development. But then uh, tomorrow, we're going to go through kind of the sort of clinical and pastoral implications of that. Basically, how to use this information to help people to heal. All right. So uh, when I was uh, in graduate school, I, I, I kind of did this sort of Oreo cookie thing with psychology and theology. I did my master's in psychology, then I did some theology stuff, and then I went back and finished my psychology degree. And when I was doing that, that bridge from theology back to psychology and getting into my clinical work, I was looking for something that would kind of help bridge the gap, help, something in psychology that would um, help me to, to go from a theological perspective of the person to dealing with this unique, concrete individual before me in the clinical setting. And I had studied attachment theory years before, and uh, it came up again, and so I, I began studying it very deeply. But I, I want to first just lay a little bit of a foundation for um, how I understand the person. And this is very brief and very sketchy, uh, but just as by way of overview, some ideas about how I see the person from the viewpoint of uh, Catholic anthropology. And this idea of love being our origin and our end is really uh, central to everything that I do and how I understand people. Uh, basically, the idea that humanity, every human being, was... Uh, or is loved into existence by God. And that has an, a number of key implications. The first is that we're relational beings. And this relational dimension of the person is really at the core of who we are. It's not something that's sort of added on later. It's not just something that we do like an activity. It's something that defines our very being. It's something that we are. We are relational. We can't exist without relationship. And metaphysically speaking, our very being is a gift to us from God. It's, it's, we're constituted in relationship with God at the level of being. And being created in the image of God, uh, we know from Scripture, from the revelation of Christ, that God is love, right? And this means that, that uh, God in himself is love. It's not just that he loves us, but he is love, especially in the communion of the three persons of the Trinity. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God. Again, it, we're getting at this idea of a core relationality, that there's something about us because we're created in God's image that uh, means that 
communion of persons is uh, at our, both at our origin and at, and at our end. So we are called to communion, first of all with God, to receive and respond to his love, and with others, to love them as God loves them. So love is not only what we are, it's what we're called to do. But the question arises, how do we learn how to love? All right? We don't come into the world with a fully mature ability to love people. Um, we come into the, the world very sort of naive and, and innocent in many respects, but there's much that we have to learn, including how to love as a mature human being. And so how do we learn how to love? Through experience. Experience. We know that grace builds on nature, but I like to add that nature is shaped by experience. Now, I don't mean nature in a big sense of, of human nature, but each of our unique instantiations of human nature is shaped by our experiences. And so um, our ability to respond to God's grace and this calling that we all have to love as he loves is shaped by our experiences. And this quote from uh, John Paul II's first encyclical kind of gets at that, I think. He said, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter it, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. So core to this, this uh, quotation here is the idea that we have to experience love. We have to receive it in order to be able to give it. And that happens to us in the normal course of events, primarily through other people. So what kind of experience um, teaches us how to love? Primarily relationships, especially the family. JP2 said that the family is the first school of the social virtues. And uh, Benedict XVI gave us this quote, which Dr. Borio already mentioned. The family is the privileged setting where every person learns to give and receive love. This was an address he gave, I think it was to a world meeting of families uh, or something like that in Spain, pretty early in his pontificate. And I really kind of seized onto this quote because I hadn't heard, um, it's, not unco it's uncommon to hear someone talk about learning how to love. And it's the first time I had seen that in any kind of papal document or, or a speech. I mean, it was kind of implied in some of the things that JP2 said, but Benedict XVI in his, in his sort of own, you know, unique style gets right to the point. Uh, and this idea of learning to give and receive love is based in our family experiences. So through our various relationships, our experiences in relationships, especially the family, our ability to give and receive love is shaped. Okay, so then why attachment theory? If that's kind of a little bit of a background for uh, you know, the human person from a theological point of view, why, why use attachment theory? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, as we'll see, this theory gives a primacy of place to the relational dimension of the person. Okay? It's primarily a relational theory of the person. Secondly, it's based on natural science. Okay? Uh, as we'll talk about, John Bowlby was uh, very much uh, uh, devoted to the idea of, of natural science uh, and wanted to base his ideas uh, on something solid, not just airy-fairy theory. And from a Catholic point of view, this is also helpful because uh, all truth leads us back to Christ. Right? So science done well should harmonize with our theological and philosophical understanding of the person. All right, and attachment theory uh, has produced a number of prospective longitudinal studies and extensive empirical support that I'll talk about. It's also a kind of an integrative theory. It brings together a lot of different dimensions of the person. Cognition, in other words, how we think, 
emotion, how we feel, behavior, how we act, our relationships with other people, and our bodiliness. All of these things are important parts of, of attachment theory. And as I explored in my dissertation, I think that much of it is compatible with a Catholic anthropology. Now, of course, there are some things that we can be skeptical about, as we should always be, but I think much of it is, is uh, very usable and harmonious with a Catholic view of the person. In my view, attachment is psychology's best answer to the question, how do we learn how to love? In other words, it's, this is psychology's attempt to, to explore that question in more detail, more particularity. You know, what concrete things uh, happen in a family that shapes a person's ability to give and receive love, either for, for better or for worse? And uh, I think attachment theory and, and attachment research has a lot of really interesting and useful things to say about that. So I'd like to uh, kind of give you a little background on attachment theory. Uh, because I think it's really useful, and it'll help us understand a lot of the research that I'm going to talk about. So attachment theory was developed by John Bowlby, uh, who, whose dates are on the slide there, 1907-1990. He was a, uh, a British psychoanalyst. He trained uh, in Britain under Melanie Klein. Melanie Klein was uh, one of the leaders of the psychoanalytic establishment at the time when he was going through his psychiatric training. Anna Freud was one of the other key leaders. And uh, as a, an analyst, uh, he was very much concerned about helping people, helping individuals, helping families. But he had a lot of critical things to say about psychoanalysis in terms of its scientific basis. He questioned uh, much of Freudian theory because it lacked a solid scientific basis. And he felt that psychological theory should be based more on a natural science model. In other words, real experience is important. It's kind of hard for us to, to sort of imagine this now, but in his day, Kleinian psychoanalytic theory really emphasized fantasy life and wish fulfillment and defense mechanisms and things like that much more than real experience. So to a Kleinian analyst in Bowlby's day, what was more important is what goes on in between our ears, the kinds of fantasies that we have, the, the wishes that we have, how we struggle with those wishes and so forth, as opposed to the actual events in our lives and how those things impact us. And so, you know, for instance, um, well, I, I could go on an anecdote, but let's just skip that for time. The point is, is that Bowlby had issues with this. He thought that real experience was valuable and important, and we need to take that into account in a way that uh, Klein and her disciples uh, were not doing. So he also took issue with uh, the method that led to psychoanalytic theory, generating psychoanalytic theory. The way psychoanalytic personality theories were, were developed were something like this. Uh, you have an analyst who sees uh, adult patients, learns about them, learns to understand how their personality works, learns about their history, and sort of creates a retrospective account of how they came to be this way. Okay, so much of psychoanalytic theory was based on these retrospective accounts from adults of their upbringing and, and you know, how they got to be the, the way they are. So from a scientific point of view, this sort of retrospective account of personality development really doesn't have much merit. It doesn't have much solidity to it. And so he felt that a better way to develop personality theory was to actually observe kids and watch them grow up and uh, study them prospectively as opposed to taking adults and studying retrospectively what their life was like. 
and this put him at, at odds with the psychoanalytic establishment. Okay, in the uh, 1940s and 50s, Bowlby began to study a phenomenon called maternal deprivation. Uh, as a result of World War II, there were a lot of uh, orphans and uh, other children who were institutionalized for periods of time or sometimes, um, you know, more or less permanently. And there was growing concern about these children and this phenomenon that a few people were calling maternal deprivation. The, uh, again, this may be hard for us to imagine now because so much time has passed and, and cultures and, and customs have changed. But at that, time, uh, at that time, it was not uncommon for young children to under undergo fairly long separations in some cases. For instance, if uh, mother had, let's say she had a three-year-old and now she's pregnant, she's going to have another child and she goes to the hospital, uh, she might leave uh, the three-year-old in the hospital nursery uh, to be cared for by a rotating staff uh, while she's having the baby and recuperating and so forth and have uh, little to no contact with, with mother or father during that time. Similarly, if a child, a young child, uh, really a child of any age, went to the hospital maybe for a tonsillectomy or something like that, some kind of procedure, uh, they were allowed one hour of uh, visiting time with their family per week. And that was sort of the norm of uh, the 1950s in England and, and I presume many other places as well. Uh, and when Bowlby and some of his colleagues began to protest and say that this is really not good for these kids, they were sort of laughed at and mocked because people could not uh, even comprehend that there was something harmful about this. So one of the things that, that um, he did is, is with a, a colleague, James Robertson, is they conducted some cinematic studies. In other words, they filmed. They took a, a camera. This is 1950, so I'm sure it was a clunky old thing. But they, they took a camera and they videotaped some of these kids going through these separations. And they studied this. They did, I think they published three studies this way. And they showed how distressing these separations were. And they also mapped out the, uh, um, the pattern of distress the kids go through. Uh, and this idea of protest, despair, and detachment was, uh, came from Bowlby's work with, with James Robertson. That first there's anxiety and protest, there's the separation distress, eventually that gives way to despair or deep sadness, uh, and eventually to a sense of uh, apathy, you know, kind of giving up on relationship. Um, and this also became the basis for uh, Bowlby's later work on, on grief and loss as well. And because of his work in these two areas, maternal deprivation and, and so forth, uh, uh, sorry, because of his work in this area and, and the cinematic studies that they did, uh, he became very influential. The World Health Organization commissioned him to uh, publish a report on their behalf on the dangers of maternal deprivation and uh, hospital policies and uh, orphanage policies and things like that began to change. Okay, one last point uh, is that Bowlby was dissatisfied with um, what he called secondary drive theories of attachment, okay? What does that mean? It, it's kind of technical. Well, the idea is that um, you can't deny that there's a bond that occurs between a child and his caretaker, usually the mother, okay? And so psychoanalytic uh, theory, uh, American behaviorist theory, they acknowledge that there's a kind of a bond that occurs there. But how they explained that bond was that it was a secondary phenomenon. And that's what he means by secondary drive theory. It's a secondary thing. It's not primary in its own right. The psychoanalysts uh, said that a child forms a bond with his mother because 
she gives him pleasure, oral pleasure. So the child then prefers her and wants her around because she gives him pleasure. And it's only later on that the child begins to understand that she's a person too, uh, and so forth. And the behaviorist said something similar using different words, that, that the child begins to prefer the mother because she reinforces him. She gives him positive reinforcement. She smiles. She talks to him. She responds to his cries. She feeds him. And so the bond that occurs is really a secondary phenomenon based on something prior, like food or, or uh, oral pleasure or something like that. And Bowlby was dissatisfied with this. So he went on a search uh, for uh, scientific evidence to help him ground his theory. He was looking for something in the, the natural sciences, and he came to ethology. Ethology is the study of human or, sorry, animal behavior. And one of the people that he came across was Con Conrad Lorenz. Is anybody familiar with Lorenz? Might see him in a sidebar in your Psych 100 textbook or something like that. He studied geese and other waterfowl and discovered um, the phenomenon of imprinting. Basically, imprinting um, occurs shortly after a, a, a goose hatches or a gosling hatches. They look for some moving object in their environment. And whatever they encounter, some moving object, they will form a bond. They will imprint on that object. And they will begin to follow it. And they will follow it very, very persistently. And Lorenz did these studies where he would take these goslings and he would take the eggs and he would hatch them apart from the mother and uh, see what would happen. And they would hatch and, well, what happened? They imprinted on Lorenz. So there's old video. You can actually find this on YouTube if you search enough for it. Uh, I found one once that had a Spanish um, you know, uh, voiceover, which is weird because Lorenz was German. But anyway, uh, you see Lorenz walking all around his, his place with these goslings following him, and he could not get them to stop. Uh, whatever he did, they wanted to be right next to him, and they would protest if he tried to separate them. And when he mixed them with other goslings and with the biological mother, they would very quickly segregate out to be with him as opposed to being with the other geese. And this is not dependent on food or anything else. So Bowlby seized onto this because here we have evidence in the animal literature of an instinct to bond with another that's not dependent on food or other reinforcement. Okay? Now, also pivotal for him was the work of Harry Harlow. Harlow was also an ethologist who studied rhesus monkeys. Um, again, you might come across his work in your you know, intro to psych textbook or something like that. He did a number of fascinating studies uh, with rhesus monkeys where he would separate them from their mothers at birth, rear them in isolation, or rear them uh, with a group of peers, or rear them with uh, a surrogate mother. And the surrogates that he used were not actual live mothers. They were basically um, an inanimate object, like a doll dressed up to be like a monkey. Okay? And in one of his most famous renditions of this study, he gave uh, the rhesus monkeys a choice between two mothers, two surrogate mothers. One was just a, a wire structure, like a, you know, a cold kind of wire structure with a face on it. The other was identical, but it was coated in soft brown terry cloth, so it was soft and cuddly. Okay? Well, the monkeys would prefer the soft terry cloth one every time. But what if you hook up a feeding apparatus to the wire mother so that they always get food from the wire surrogate? never from the cloth surrogate. And what happened was the monkeys still preferred the cloth surrogate every time. And they would cling to the cloth surrogate um, sometimes up to 20 hours a day and only go over to the wire surrogate to feed for short bursts and then go back to 
clinging on to the, the soft terry cloth mother. So again, this gave Bowlby something solid to stand on, something from the animal literature showing that here in another primate, we have an instinct to form a bond that's not dependent on food. In fact, it's really, in this case, the, the, the mother's not really doing anything. It's just soft and available. And that's all these little monkeys need. They want something soft and available to cling on to. And it helped them feel more secure. Harlow even tried to punish the monkeys to see if he could sort of break this bond, you know, to see if he could uh, manipulate it that way. So in one, another rendition of his studies, he rigged up an apparatus where uh, the monkeys would be holding on to the, the, the terry cloth mother, and a little light would go off. And once the light went off, then the monkeys would be hit with a, a strong blast of compressed air. Now this is a very aversive stimulus for a little rhesus monkey, very scary and uncomfortable. So the idea was that through a kind of classical conditioning uh, paradigm, they would begin to see the light, anticipate that the blast is coming, and let go of the cloth mother and get out of there. But that's not what happened. What happened was that uh, when the light would come on, they would cling tighter, right? And Harlow, uh, he said about this, what, the way he interpreted this was that um, anything threatening intensifies attachment behavior. It doesn't extinguish it, okay? So this kind of, you know, was sort of going against the behaviorist paradigm to a certain extent, um, but also was great uh, food for, for Bowlby as he was developing his theory. Okay. So some of the basic points of Bowlby's attachment theory, which he developed, and he wrote a trilogy of books laying this out, uh, the Attachment and Loss Trilogy, uh, and he began publishing those around 1960, and that uh, continued up through the, the 70s. I think the last volume was published right around either 78 or 80, something like that, uh, this trilogy of books. And they're still in print, and they're phenomenal. So one of his basic ideas is that there's a basic instinct toward relatedness. It's not secondary upon anything else. It's basic. In other words, we have an instinct to form a relationship, and that's fundamental to who we are. And in his sort of scientific way of trying to explain this, he borrowed a lot of language from ethology uh, and evolutionary theory, and he talked about the attachment behavioral system. That's kind of technical verbiage for basically an idea of an instinct that we have an instinct, we come into the world with this instinct to form a bond to our caregiver. Uh, it's not dependent on food or other reinforcement. It's present from, basically from birth. Uh, it strongly emerges in the second half of the first year of life. He talked about the set goal of this attachment instinct as maintaining the caregiver's accessibility and responsiveness. Now he's talking about the, the, the attachment instinct in humans now. It looks a little different in different species, but for humans, the goal is to maintain our caregiver's accessibility and responsiveness. We need that in order to survive infancy, and we need that in order to feel secure. And in some way, that remains with us throughout life, as we'll talk about. This attachment instinct is triggered by danger, uh, basically anything that threatens us, as Harlow talked about, illness, fatigue, uh, separation from our caregivers, um, things like that. So when these situations occur, it triggers our attachment instinct and, and it makes us feel and, and inclines us to do certain things to restore uh, a sense of security. It aids in our survival by providing protection. As you know, an infant is pretty helpless and um, 
if you think back to, you know, sort of what we imagine our evolutionary history to be when maybe, you know, a few hundreds or thousands of years ago we're living in a, in a kind of a, uh, you know, a more wilderness type of environment, uh, human infants were subject to predation and the need for uh, adults to be protective and to be responsive to them was essential for their survival, not just to feed them, but to protect them from danger. And so that's kind of the survival value of it. But it takes on much more meaning than that, you know, when we think of the full drama of human life uh, from uh, birth onward. In Bowlby's theory, attachment is just one of several key instincts or behavioral systems that he talks about. And I want to mention a few others because they interact with the attachment instinct in some interesting ways. So, for instance, he talks about the caregiving instinct. The caregiving instinct is the, it's complementary. It's the complement to the attachment instinct. It's why we feel uncomfortable when we hear a baby cry, right? You know, where does that come from? Well, hearing a baby cry triggers something in us in an instinctual kind of level that we need to go help that little child, okay? That's how instincts work. They, they, they make us feel something and they incline us to work in a certain way or do something. They don't determine us, but they prompt us. And the caregiving instinct is the complement to the attachment instinct. So a child shows attachment behavior, might cry out or reach for a caregiver or something like that. And the caregiver should feel an instinctive desire to want to respond and be helpful and to take care of and protect that child. He also talked about an instinct for exploration, or an exploratory instinct. And that has to do with going out to explore or investigate the environment, to try new things, become independent, develop new skills. You see this in toddlers, and we'll talk a little more about this later on, about how when they're feeling relatively secure, they want to go explore. They want to go try new things. They want to see the environment, go play with things, and see what they can do. The affiliative instinct has to do with belonging to the larger group. So moving beyond kind of the attachment dyad, the desire to belong to a group, a community. Uh, the sexual instinct he talked about has to do obviously with, with uh, forming a, um, what's called a pair bond and reproducing. And then a fear awareness instinct, which has to do with uh, retreating from danger. All right, we're not gonna talk about all those in depth, but we will touch on some of them. Uh, as I already mentioned, the complementary um, relationship between caregiving and attachment. In this regard, it's important to point out that the child is attached to the parent, not the other way around. And I think this point is especially important because the, the term attachment has become popularized quite a bit in recent years, and there's a lot that's been written about attachment parenting and things like that. And much of that material is good. Uh, and we've utilized much of that in my own family. But the term attachment oftentimes gets used in a way that's, um, I think, not entirely appropriate. The child is attached to the parent because the child needs the parent. The child needs the parent to care for it and protect it. The parent should not need the child, okay? If the, chi if the parent is attached to the child, that means that the parent is gratifying certain needs in and through the child, all right? And that leads to a kind of enmeshed or even sometimes role-reversed relationship, uh, which is really unhealthy and leads to um, you know, problems in personality development. So I'm going to be very clear about how I use these terms, that the child is the one who's attached, not the parent. Okay? Now, when we get to adult relationships, it looks a little bit different. But at least in terms of parent-child relationships, 
uh, and some hierarchical relationships even in adulthood. The attachment goes one direction. The caregiving response is what the other person provides. So the child is attached to the parent. The parent cares for the child. The attachment instinct and the exploratory instinct in mutually inhibit each other. What do I mean by that? Well, in order to go out and explore, I have to feel relatively safe and secure. If I don't, I'm going to be inhibited and I'm gonna to want to stay close to my attachment figure, okay? So what that means is that if, if there's danger or something threatening, that triggers my attachment instinct to go to the attachment figure and that inhibits my ability to go out and explore. But when I feel secure there, that my attachment figure is there for me if I need him or her, um, and so that gives me confidence, now I can begin to separate and go out and explore. So that security in the attachment relationship really aids my independence. It aids my ability to go out and develop myself, okay? But if something scary happens, if I have a setback or I hurt myself in some way, then I'm gonna wanna go back to my attachment figure and uh, receive some kind of comfort and support. And so Bowlby talked about these sort of two functions of the attachment figure, the secure base and the safe haven. The secure base is when the attachment figure is there for me if I need him or her, but um, not interfering with my desire to go out and explore. Have your space, go play, it's okay, I'll be here if you need anything. You know? And the child goes out and plays, and they may you know, want to share, share a discovery or share a new toy with the parent. Hey, look what I can do, or look what I found, or hey, mom, are you still there? You know, those kinds of secure-based check-ins. But that enables the child to have the confidence to go explore. The safe haven function is when the child comes back, maybe in some form of distress, and needs calming, soothing, comforting. Uh, and once that uh, distress is resolved and the child feels secure again, then they go back to exploring. So I have a diagram I'll show you in a little bit that sort of illustrates this sort of safe haven, secure base function of the attachment relationship. Okay. All right, enough about that. All right, so the attachment instinct is also present throughout the lifespan. This was something that Bowlby repeated again and again. The phrase that he liked to use uh, was from the cradle to the grave. In other words, we don't ever really grow out of this instinct. It's just that it changes as we develop, and it takes slightly different forms. So the kind of attachment behavior we show as infants, maybe crying uh, or crawling after our caregiver, is different from what we might show now. Now, you know, sending a text message can be an attachment behavior. I'm checking in with somebody, you know, and I'm hoping to get a response, right? That could be an attachment behavior. Uh, or even just looking across the room, you know, to see if, uh, if so-and-so is still there and, you know, whether I can get his or her attention. Um, these are things that we might do as, as young adults uh, that could be considered attachment behaviors. But the instinct is still there. There's still a need for attachment relationships in our life all the way through to the very end. Um, Mary Ainsworth did a pioneering study, first with, uh, and I'll talk about Mary Ainsworth in a few minutes, first in Uganda and then in the United States, where she observed how attachment develops over the first few years of life. And she learned some interesting things so for instance, in, in the first six months of life or so, uh, the child goes from uh, not showing a very strong preference for a particular caregiver to beginning to, to prefer more and more one or two key individuals as 
uh, their, their you know, specific attachment figures. So if you've ever been around a newborn, you know, you can pass a newborn around and they're not going to cry much. They don't protest much if a mother, you know, has her newborn baby and she hands the baby to somebody else to hold for a little while. Right? They don't show much separation, distress, and they're sort of geared to uh, orient to whoever's around, to, to look and smile and make funny little baby sounds and just be cute and adorable to whoever happens to be there. And all that has survival value. Okay? If a baby is separated from mother at birth, or maybe mother dies during childbirth, the baby needs to be able to bond with anybody who happens to be available. Okay? And uh, they also, to help with that, do these little cute things to sort of reinforce the caregiver to pay attention to it. Okay? Uh, now, we know from later research that newborns do prefer their mother's scent uh, and the sound of her voice, the taste of her breast milk. Um, there's a sort of uh, primordial preference for the mother that you, you can't overcome. That being said, though, there's a great flexibility in newborns to connect with whoever happens to be around, I think, in case some you know, calamitous circumstance happens. But you see in the, in the later half of the first year, this kind of narrowing of their focus onto one or two key figures, right? And they begin to prefer to be with mom or whoever the primary caregiver is. And they begin to show distress when separated from her. And they begin to shy away from other people. And this is where we see real, a very specific attachment relationship, you know, really um, evolving and uh, um, emerging. So we see separation, distress, and stranger anxiety. And this continues over the next couple of years. In fact, stranger anxiety increases typically over the, the second year of life. And the reason for that is the more I hone in on this one relationship or one or two relationships, and those become more and more important to me, that opens up the category of stranger. So if I can identify who my primary attachment figure is, that means I can also identify everybody else as not her or not him. And so they become strangers. And strangers might get in the way of my attachment relationship. And so strangers become somewhat threatening. Of course, we eventually grow out of that with time and with experience. Um, but that's um, you know, pretty typical for, say, two-year-olds. Now, around age three or four, we go through something uh, or achieve something that Mainsworth called the goal-corrected partnership. And what that refers to is the ability to negotiate our needs with the attachment figure. So at that point, we're getting a little more cognitively sophisticated. We're getting more verbal. And so we can begin to understand that I want to play, but mom may not want to play. And we begin to try to influence her to, you know, kind of join our plan. And so there's this back and forth dialogue that begins to happen. And that's called the, this goal-corrected partnership. When uh, attachment figure and, and child begin to influence each other's uh, needs and goals. And when they can do that in a harmonious way, the child feels very secure. In fact, there's research that shows that four-year-olds uh, handle separations better if there's been a plan discussed for reunion. So in other words, if mom or dad or whoever took the time to explain, okay, we're gonna go here and we're gonna go there, I'm gonna drop you off, then I gotta go do this, and then I'll come back and pick you up, and then we're gonna have lunch. The child's much more comforted by that and will much le be less likely to show distress about the separation because there's a shared plan to um, preserve the relationship. 
And that, the ability to form that, the ability to negotiate needs and form that goal-corrected partnership is a crucial developmental skill that a lot of us struggle with. Um, I haven't seen a married couple come into my office that didn't struggle with this in some way. I mean, our adult relationships are really all about negotiation of needs in, uh, in many respects. And so our ability to, to learn this and to master this uh, is crucial for the success of our, our subsequent relationships. Okay. In adolescence, we begin to see a shifting of attachment needs from parents to peers. Now, this is not an all or nothing. It's a gradual process. But for instance, you know, um, a late adolescent may confide more in friends about certain you know, forms of distress that they're going through than a parent. Uh, but if something big really happens, they're probably still going to go to mom or dad, and that's true even of college freshmen. Um, but over that sort of adolescent, young adult period, there's this shifting away from relying so much on mom and dad to fill my needs for safety and security and shifting more to the peer group, friends, best friends, and eventually a romantic partner. And these relationships tend to be more reciprocal. What I mean by that is that it, it's in an adult attachment relationship, say between friends or romantic partners, the relationship should be fairly reciprocal. That at any point in time, he may be the attachment figure for me, but at another point in time, she may be the attachment figure. There's a giving and receiving of care. And whatever happens to be going on in that moment you know, may determine who's on which end of that, but it should be fairly flexible so that the relationship can adapt to different situations. Sometime one person is in need, another time the other person's in need. And we need to be able to do both sides of the relationship to be able to express our needs for care and support and to be able to give that to the other. Okay, and so you see here an integration of both attachment and caregiving in a reciprocal relationship. And when we get into romantic relationships like marriage, you also get the sexual instinct coming in, the desire to, uh, to procreate, okay? And so attachment theorists think of um, you know, marital relationships as being um, highly influenced by these three instincts. The instinct to have an attachment, the instinct to care for another, and the instinct to uh, reproduce. And there's been a lot of interesting things written about that and how those things interact with each other. Okay, not to, to bore you to death with theory, but one other key concept for Bowlby, and I think this is the last one, is his idea of internal working models. What is an internal working model? Okay, it's an experience-based mental representation of self and other. All right, let me break that down. What does that mean? It means that through my experiences, I form a picture in my head. And this picture in my head has to do with how my relationship with my attachment figure works. Okay, so I form a picture in my head based on my real interactions of how this relationship works. So when I cry, he or she tends to respond this way. When I go off to play independently, he or she tends to respond this way. When I do this, he or she does that, and so forth and so on. When I try to influence uh, his or her to maybe spend more time with me, this is how they tend to respond. All those things kind of get formed into this picture in our head called the internal working model. It sort of makes a, a mental template for how attachment relationships work. And it's based on our experiences. Now we're talking about experiences very early in life, experiences that you and I can't consciously remember but yet they get sort of wired into us through experience. And this is a key concept in Bowlby's theory. So these internal working models are formed early in life. 
and uh, they become this template by which we, um, which we apply to future relationships. We use them, for instance, to anticipate outcomes and to plan our behavior, right? Not necessarily in a conscious way. This is, this is again, all largely at this instinctive level. If I approach this person this way, what kind of response am I going to get, okay? Those things are largely based on our experiences, and it's part of what he called the internal working model. These internal working models are relatively stable. In other words, once they're formed, you know, they tend to remain fairly stable over time, but they are open to change and update, largely based on new experiences. All right? So we have an ability to adapt to new experiences, but that ability to adapt is always kind of limited by you know, what we bring into it. So there's always a kind of, a, as we'll see later on, a kind of um, both a present focus and a past focus here. I'm bringing into this relationship all my expectations and experiences wrapped up in my internal working model. Um, but, you know, if I'm open to it and the relationship lasts long enough, this experience may help gradually to change me as well. Bowlby was very clear that he thought internal working models, distorted ones, ones that are, that are not well suited to relationships, uh, to healthy relationships, leads to psychopathology. Um, in more contemporary language, we might talk about these internal working models as reflecting the way circuits and certain, certain circuits in the brain get formed, especially during the, the end of the first year of life. The, the limbic part of the brain is where emotions and instincts uh, largely manifest themselves. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that's sort of like, um, well, it's the seat of what they call executive function. It's kind of where we um, can be aware of a lot of things, where we can focus our attention, where we can learn to control our, our instincts and things like that. And uh, we kind of, this internalization of the parent and of the parent's relationship with us reflects the way those circuits are sort of uh, shaped early in life. And these internal working models affect our, the way we manifest our attachment behavior, the way we learn to regulate our emotions, uh, our self-image, uh, our subsequent relationships, and our mental health. All right, I already mentioned this lady, Mary Ainsworth. Uh, she was a colleague of Bowlby's. Um, she's from Canada, and she went over to the UK with her husband, who was doing graduate school, and she kind of, you know, surreptitiously, providentially, kind of by luck of the draw, ended up responding to a job ad that Bowlby had put in the newspaper and ended up working with him. And uh, she, what she ended up doing after learning about his theory, she really embraced it. She went out and she put it to the test. Uh, and did two landmark studies. One I mentioned already in Uganda and another uh, in the United States where she took uh, 26 families uh, during pregnancy and uh, began studying them uh, up until the birth of the child and then through the whole first year of the child's life. She would go to the family's home, interview the mother, and observe the mother with the child uh, for four hours um, each week for 54 weeks. Um, that wasn't each week, because there's 18 home visits. But anyway, 18 of these four-hour visits where she was collecting a lot of data about child development and mother-child interaction. And this uh, experiment, or this study, was also where the strange situation procedure was developed. The strange situation procedure uh, is a very interesting uh, experimental procedure. It involves basically, the goal of it is to try to uh, stimulate the child's attachment instinct so it can be observed. 
a problem Ainsworth had in her study was that after all that FaceTime, all that contact, the children um, got very comfortable with these observers coming into their home and they were feeling so safe and secure it was hard to observe attachment behavior in action. So we thought, she thought, well let's bring them into a laboratory, an artificial environment, and let's see if we can kind of rig it so that the child gets a little scared and wants to go to mom and then we can kind of observe what happens. So it's a little bit cruel, but um, all, all in the, you know, the, the, all, all for science, right? So first they bring parent and child into the playroom. Child begins to play in the parent's presence. Then a stranger enters the room, okay? And remember, these children are about one year old. And you can do this up through about age two or three. After that, you have to kind of modify it. But anyway, a stranger comes into the room. So you've got now stranger distress. So the observers can observe, okay, what does the child do now? The stranger's in the room. Then the parent leaves. So now the child's alone in a strange place with a stranger, all right? This is highly distressing. Uh, and so they want to see how the child handles the separation. Then the parent returns and they want to see, okay, how does a child respond to the parent once they come back in? They call this the first reunion, the first reunion episode. How does that go? All right, and the stranger leaves. Then the parent leaves. So now the child's alone again, now all alone. No parent, no stranger, strange place, and they're distressed. Then, and this is where it gets really cruel, the stranger comes back. <laughs> so they're all alone in this room, mom's gone, and now the stranger comes in. Now what? So the stranger comes in, interacts with the child a little bit, then the stranger leaves and the parent returns and we have the second reunion phase. So all of this only takes about 22, 23 minutes. These are very short episodes. And if the child becomes very distressed, uh, they'll cut the, the separation parts short because they don't want to traumatize the child. They just want to, um, you know, maybe scare it a little bit. Okay, so this enabled Ainsworth and colleagues uh, to identify different patterns of attachment. Different patterns of attachment. They found different patterns emerge in how these mothers and children interacted. And first they, were, they identified three, and later there was a fourth added, and I'll talk about it in a few minutes. The first pattern was the secure pattern. And this is where the child was comfortable using mom as a secure base to go out and explore. Um, but when the separation came, they were distressed. They cried, maybe they followed her, you know, stood, <laughs> stood at the door. They protested somehow. But, and this is the most important part, at the reunion, they sought contact and were comforted by it. So they went to the, the, the mother or the caregiver and were comforted by the contact that they received. And that enabled them to go back and resume playing. Those are the key hallmarks of a secure attachment. I can go to the attachment figure with my distress. I can receive comfort and that leaves me secure enough to go out and play and be independent. They also identified a pattern that they called avoidant. And these kids explored easily, but they didn't check in with mom uh, as much. They didn't show as much secure base behavior. They also tended to show a little bit less distress at the separation. But again, what's most pivotal is the reunion part. And at these, uh, this phase of, of the procedure, these kids were less likely to seek proximity, and when they did seek proximity, they did so in a more kind of detached way. Um, they were more, um, there's a tendency to kind of suppress the, uh, the, the distress and not express it as directly to the attachment figure. And I have a video I'll show you in just a minute that you'll get to see this. The third pattern is what they called ambivalent. And this is where 
Uh, these children tended to be a little bit more fussy and clingy. Um, they were highly distressed by the separation. But again, the most important part is the reunion. During the reunion, these children will seek contact, but they're not able to be comforted by it. They continue to show distress, oftentimes mixed with anger. There's sort of a mixture of, I want mom, I, I want her to be here with me, but I'm still angry that she left, and I somehow can't seem to calm down. And so these are the, the three initial patterns that, uh, that Ainsworth observed. As I said, I have a video that I'd like to show you that kind of illustrates these. Um, it was put together by an attachment researcher, Everett Waters, uh, who was kind enough to give me permission to use it. Let's see if I can get it to play here. We'll have you do a brief interaction with some play. Then, in just a few minutes, we'll send you back in. You step in the door. Everett Waters is studying how far our childhood experiences influence our behavior as adults. We'll come down to the lab. Okay. We'll do this now. This experiment, which I watched through a two-way mirror, is designed to gauge how secure is the crucial relationship between mother and child. The value of the test has been established in studies that would watch a child, one year old, and then follow it up and interview them about their relationships to their parents when they were 21 years old. So we're quite confident in the long-term significance of this relationship. After several minutes play, the mother is signaled to leave the room. in the experiment is the child's reaction to her mother's return. The important clue is whether the baby's able to become calmed down by the contact with the mother and get back to play. Sometimes it takes a couple of minutes. But you see, when the mother was out, she was only interested in the mother, no interest in the toys. Now she has a contact with the mother, She's beginning to show a little interest in the environment, and shortly she'll be right back with the toys where we started. So you would call this a secure one? Yes, yes. She's certainly much happier. Now, and this is an insecure baby. We get the measure of the baby's play before the separation. When the mother leaves, the baby cries, goes to the door following her, now, we, we sent the mother right back in, but the point here is not to distress the baby. We're just trying to challenge it. The baby 
puts her hands to her face in a sad expression, puts her face down. When she picks her up, she keeps her head down, her arms out, and then she sits in the chair holding the baby. The baby's still sullen. He's, he's, he's low-keyed. So you would call the, this insecure Yes, attachment. insecure. He's avoidant. He's, he's not engaging her, and it's not being, the reunion's not effective. And it's important to remember here that the thing that upset him was her absence. Her, re, her return should be the solution to his problem. Now this is another pattern that we see in babies who are not good at using their mother as a secure base at home. This baby is also insecure. But you'll see, we get a look at his play before the separation. Mother's left, and when she returns, she picks him up. He can't calm down. He's still upset. She offers a toy to amuse him or to comfort him or to distract him, and he slaps it away. She offers another, he slaps it away. He's angry. He's, he's, we call these babies resistant or ambivalent because they both want her back and yet can't use the contact. We think that the difficulty is that in the past, when he sought comfort, she's been inconsistent as to whether she's available and responsive or not. Do you think these really are indications for vulnerability for depression later in life? I don't think that insecure attachment in infancy is the cause of depression in adulthood. However, when a child learns that he can trust his mother to be available and responsive, he's beginning to learn that you can trust other people, that you can turn to them when you're in trouble. The baby is also taught by the mother, as he gets older, how to understand his emotions, how to construe events that happen to them. You know, every bump in the road is not a disaster. This is a powerful asset when you encounter difficulties in life. So what'd you think? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's also uh, um, amazing how subtle the differences are. I mean, you're looking at a very small differences. I mean, you might miss it if you weren't, if you in a way didn't know what to look for. Um, and it's, again, specifically in those reunion phases where these differences start to show up. And attachment research has made clear that these are not differences that are sort of um, inherent in the child. They're not innate. These things are adaptations or responses to these children's uh, real experiences with their caregivers. <coughs> Uh, as he talked about, the child who's ambivalent may be having uh, the experience of inconsistent responding from the mother. The avoidant child is often, um, that's a, can be a response to two different kinds of things. One is where the, uh, the parent is um, discouraging of attachment, doesn't like to be close to the child. The child cries, the, the parent might respond in a cold or critical way. Uh, or sometimes to a parent who's overly intrusive and, and the, the child sort of becomes avoidant to try to um, maintain some kind of boundaries. But anyway, those three patterns were identified by Ainsworth in, in uh, her original study, uh, and they've been replicated again and again and again in, in subsequent research. But as I said later, a fourth category was, was identified, and it's called disorganized attachment. And in the reunion phase, these children 
showed strange, confused, contradictory behavior. Like they might go towards mom, but then run away. Or, uh, you know, be happy to see her, but then fall down and start crying again. Um, or just kind of momentarily space out um, and act confused. And the idea here is, is what's going on is what's called an unresolvable paradox of fear. Remember, anything threatening uh, encourages us to go to our attachment figure, okay? But what if the attachment figure is a source of fear? Then the child is stuck. There's no solution. My instincts are telling me, at both at the same time, go to him or her and flee from him or her. And so the child doesn't know what to do and becomes dysregulated and kind of um, shows a sort of confusing, contradictory sort of behavior. All right. And uh, this is found, you see this more in clinical populations, you know, and where there's abuse and things like that um, and so forth. There's been a lot of subsequent research on these attachment patterns that I want to go through with you. Uh, just to kind of pool some of it, uh, there was a, some, been some major meta-analyses done on the strange situation. A meta-analysis is where researchers take a whole bunch of different studies and pool them together. So you get a much larger data pool then. So looking across many studies, we see that in the general population, about 55% or a little bit more of uh, one and two-year-olds show a secure attachment to uh, their primary caregiver. About 20% show an avoidant attachment, about 15% ambivalent, and about another 15% disorganized. But if you look at other, you know, more clinical populations, that percentage goes up quite a bit, uh, and the percentage of secure drops precipitously. We know from research that these categories are not, not redundant with temperament. It's not just that I was born this way uh, or that this is my temperament. It's an adaptation to a specific relationship. One of the ways in which we see that is that uh, it's not uncommon for children to have a different kind of attachment relationship with different caregivers. So for instance, you could have a child who's secure with one ca caregiver and avoidant with another uh, or things like that. These are adaptations to a specific relationship. These patterns tend to be relatively stable, but they're also susceptible to change, uh, either for better or for worse. And I'll say more about that in a little bit. And as I already implied, they're relationship specific. They start out that way, they're relationship specific. But later, um, as the person uh, moves through adolescence and into uh, adulthood, these various relationship experiences, it's theorized, kind of uh, become sort of merged together or integrated into an overall state of mind regarding attachment, uh, this internal working model idea. So one question that you know, researchers want to answer, and I'm sure we're all wondering about as well, is, okay, if secure attachment seems to be the best, and we'll see that it is, what promotes it? Well, you know, what predicts secure attachment? There are a number of factors that have come up in research. The first uh, is this idea of responsiveness, and this comes from Ainsworth's study. It was, in her study, by, by far the most critical factor. The mothers who were most responsive to their children, in other words, who could pick up on the child's signals, understand them, and respond to them in a, in a helpful and appropriate way, those were the, the, the children that were most likely to be secure. Okay? And so that issue of responsiveness, some related concepts from, uh, from more uh, recent research are mutuality and synchrony. Basically has to do with this idea of attunement. If, you were gonna, if I was going to kind of combine that all together, I would just use the word attunement. I'm attuned to my child's signals. 
So when the child you know, cries or does this or that, I can infer what that means. I can infer what they're feeling and what they're needing from me. And I can respond in a helpful way. This doesn't mean I'm always going to give the child the thing that he or she wants, but I can under understand the underlying needs and I can find ways to address those or at least feel the child uh, that leave the, feel, leave the child feeling understood, that I got the signal. All right, with fathers, uh, some German researchers found that the way that they play with their children uh, actually can uh, contribute to whether or not uh, children form a secure attachment with them. And particularly, uh, the a kind of play that is both sensitive to the child's needs, but also challenges them. And there's a delicate balance there. If, if the father plays with the children in a way that's too far beyond their developmental level, the child may feel somewhat ashamed that I can't, I can't do it like dad does it or I'm not good enough. And he may, that may contribute to a feeling of insecurity. So there's a need to be sensitive to where the child's at developmentally, but also kind of challenge them a little bit. It's more, more along the lines of the secure base function, you know? Dad, look at what I can do. Oh, that's great, son. Try it like this. Wow, that's even better. That kind of thing. There are also a number of uh, psychological factors in the parents that uh, affect uh, whether or not the child will be uh, secure in the attachment to them. So our overall mental health. Um, if we're struggling with depression or anxiety or other problems, you know, while the child is, is young, that may make it difficult for the child to, to feel secure with us because they can see our, our, our emotional state and see you know, whether or not uh, we seem stable and able to respond in a consistent way. Also, um, we'll talk a few, in a few minutes about an instrument called the Adult Attachment Interview. And Everett Waters mentioned it in the, in the, little, the uh, little video too. It has to do, it's this instrument that you use with adults to interview them about their past attachment experiences. And it yields, uh, categories similar to the strange situation. And as we'll see, the parent's status uh, on the adult attachment interview, whether they're secure or insecure, has a huge role in whether or not the child is able to form a secure relationship with them. And this idea of mentalizing, it's kind of a made up word, but it basically means the ability to read the child's signals, as I already talked about. The, the ability to read behavior and infer underlying mental states. Okay. And there are also some variables pertaining to the larger context. So uh, the marital satisfaction is also a, a very strong uh, factor here. If mom and dad are happy with their marriage and they feel secure with each other, that helps them to be better parents. It frees them up to be more responsive to their children. But if they feel insecure in the marriage, then it becomes a hindrance <coughs> to responsive caregiving. Also childcare arrangements. Uh, and this is kind of a controversial topic, but uh, there are some empirical data to show that the more time children spend in institutional daycare, especially once you get beyond 15 or 20 hours a week, uh, the likelihood of uh, attachment insecurity starts to go up. Uh, now that is mitigated a little bit by the particularity of the arrangement. So if you have, for instance, like a single caregiver, like a nanny or somebody like that, who's consistent in the child's life, uh, that person will likely become a kind of a, um, an adjunct or surrogate attachment figure, and that's okay. But when you go to a more of an institutional type of care system where you know, there's staff turnover, uh, people, you know, there, there may be shifting of, of 
you know, who's on this day and who's on that day, and it's inconsistent, uh, that creates more stress and difficulty for the child. All right. This is a, the image I mentioned earlier that kind of illustrates how secure attachment is supposed to work. It's called the circle of security. So these hands represent the attachment figure. And uh, you'll see on the top half of the circle uh, the secure base function and the bottom half of the circle the safe haven function. So when the parent or caregiver is acting as a secure base, the child feels free to go explore. The exploratory instinct kicks in, they go, they explore, and during that part of this, this little dance, what they most need is for the child to kind of, or the parent to kind of step back to watch over the child, but, but you know, from a, a, a polite distance so the child has space to play, to delight in their achievements, to help as needed, uh, and to enjoy this experience of curiosity and newness. Now, when the child is distressed and coming to the parent, we move down here to the safe haven part. And this is where the child needs the parent to offer protection, comfort, uh, to delight in the child's com uh, coming, and uh, to help the child make sense of their feelings. So this is kind of how it's supposed to work. Uh, and when that dance goes well, that's when you get secure attachment. Okay. So what are the outcomes of this? There's been lots and lots of research um, that's been done, some fairly short-term and some long-term. There's been studies going from infancy now, uh, 20 and 30 years uh, into adulthood to link these early attachment experiences with later phases of development. And we know conclusively that attachment security seems to promote all manner of, of uh, positive psychosocial outcomes. So things like competence uh, with peers, social competence, uh, independence, self-confidence, <coughs> excuse me, emotional resilience, self-image and the like. <coughs> excuse me. And there's even evidence <coughs> Excuse me, there's even evidence that it promotes language development. Oh, pardon me. So, <coughs> in Ainsworth's original study, she found that the kids whose mothers were most responsive, actually at the end of the year, cried the least out of all the kids in the study, which ran counter to the behaviorist expectations, that the more you respond to a child's cry, the more you, you reinforce it and you're going to get a, a, a crybaby, essentially, okay? But that's not what happened, and that's not what happens in general, is if the, if the mother's good at responding and reading the child's signals, the child cries less because there's not as much need to cry. And in fact, what happens is they learn how to communicate their needs in more subtle and sophisticated ways. And this promotes, among other things, the child's language development, and you see this uh, through the school years. And in all these different areas, attachment insecurity seems to be related to risk for uh, deficits and disorder. Doesn't mean it's the direct cause, but it's a matter of shifting um, probabilities, increased risk. In terms of psychopathology, avoidant attachment has been linked, and these are, these are kind of generalizations. Again, I'm speaking across many different studies here, so these are a little bit of um, overgeneralizations, but um, they tend to... Um, they tend to be pretty true, I mean, across a lot of different studies. Avoidant attachment seems to be linked, especially with externalizing disorders, what we might call behavior disorders. Acting out, um, not getting along well with peers, bullying, um, you know, angry, 
anger problems, um, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, things like that. Ambivalent attachment has been uh, correlated more with internalizing problems, what we might call emotional disorders, things like depression and anxiety uh, throughout the childhood years. And the disorganized attachment uh, is linked with higher risk of both. So you see more behavioral problems, more emotional problems, more of all kinds of problems. And even symptoms of dissociation. Dissociation is a, where our mental processes kind of get disconnected. You know, a mild form of dissociation is like daydreaming or losing track of time, uh, things like that. I'm sure things that you guys never do in class, certainly not on a Thursday night in a warm lecture hall. Um, but uh, more severe types of dissociation would be things like uh, buying something from a store and not remembering that you did so. Uh, or um, even more severe, uh, beginning to you know, find yourself evidence that of doing things that you don't remember, and in the most severe case, um, developing sort of semi-autonomous sub-personalities, like in multiple personality disorder, where there are parts of the person that are disconnected from each other. And what they find is that disorganized attachment seems to put people on the path for risk of dissociation. And in fact, in the longitudinal studies that have been done, uh, dis disorganized attachment at age one is correlated with ratings of dissociation at age 20. So that's a very significant finding when you see something that, that correlates 20 years later. All right, I mentioned this uh, adult attachment interview. As I said, it's a, it's a semi-structured interview that you do with adults on attachment experiences. It's transcribed and coded, and what it does is it enables you to uh, discern what is this person's state of mind regarding attachment. They're kind of um, the adult version of the internal working model, essentially. Okay? And we know from research that the adult's state of mind on the AAI strongly predicts the kind of attachment the child <laughs> will have to them. Okay. All right, we'll go, just go through this somewhat quickly. So you get a secure state of mind, and very quickly this is characterized by the ability to talk about and remember my attachment experiences, even the painful ones, in a way that's coherent, in a way that makes sense, it's compelling, I don't have to hide things, I don't get so overwhelmed that I lose track of what I'm talking about, um, I can tell a coherent story about my attachment experiences. And this is strongly linked with the, um, a child then having, forming a secure attachment to me. The dismissing avoid, uh, a state of mind, which is the adult equivalent of the avoidant, is more like, um, you know, there's, there's a tendency to uh, see attachment as sort of not important. And there's a defensiveness about attachment memories. So in the clinical setting, it often comes up this way, you know, in the first or second appointment, I'm asking about family of origin stuff, and, uh, oh, it was fine. It was normal, typical childhood. Typical, it was fine, you know, he's a good dad. And there's no detail, there's no substance, just this kind of wanting to kind of dismiss it out of hand and let's move on to more important things. And then you push and you push and you try to ask more specific questions uh, and then sometimes something might leak out like, well, yeah, he was fine, but you know, he had this drinking problem and sometimes he would hit us, but you know, it was normal. <laughs> uh, I mean, people really talk that way and it's a, it's a sign of this kind of dismissive uh, state of mind. They, they basically, this, this, these are the avoidant kids grown up. Attachment's not important. I don't really talk about it. I don't really express it. I just don't go there. 
All right, and then you have the preoccupied, which is the adult version of the ambivalent. And this is where you start asking these questions and you can't get the person to stop answering. Um, so, yeah, you know, mom always favored my sister over me and, and it was so unfair. And then just last week, you know, they had dinner together and they didn't invite me and it's, so, it's still going on and I just can't believe this. And, you know, they're so mean to me and on and on and on and on. And there's this blurring even of past and present. You see, I shifted from talking about what happened back then to last week. These are people who, who are still caught up in those attachment experiences as if they're still happening now. And once you get that attachment system going by asking about these memories, they have a hard time shutting it down again. Like the kids in the stra strange situation who were distressed and couldn't seem to be comforted. You know, they had to sort of keep, keep it going somehow just to make sure that she's not going to leave again. Okay. And then you get the unresolved, which is the adult version of disorganized. And this is where you could have a, what seems like a relatively normal conversation going, talking about childhood and so forth. And then you get to something very painful and the person kind of shuts down or they space out or something, <coughs> shi something shifts in the way that they're communicating. And what that indicates is that there's some unresolved trauma uh, and you might be tapping into some traumatic memories that are somewhat disconnected and so that the, the narrative's not coherent. Okay. As I said, these categories strongly predict the kind of attachment that these ch the children then will form to the parents. Um, and uh, for instance, a, a major meta-analysis was done showed that the, the parents' adult attachment interview status corresponded with their children's subsequent attachment to them about 74% of the time if you just look at secure versus insecure. And if you use all four categories, about 63% of the time. And sometimes the way they would do these studies is they would actually do the attachment interview with the adults while the mother's still pregnant. And then they would do the strange situation a year later when the baby's old enough. And you see these strong linkages. So something about our state of mind regarding our attachment uh, experiences influences the way that we then relate with our children and therefore the kind of attachment they form with us. That's why it's so important for us to kind of come to terms with our own baggage so that, you know, we can be free to really uh, be the kind of caregivers that our, our children need us to be. All right, um, that's enough about that. Uh, as you would expect, these categories on the AI are linked with uh, various um, types of psycho psychopathology. So the preoccupied state seems to correlate with anxiety and mood disorders. Uh, the dismissing state, um, some of that as well, but also some externalizing disorders, again, eating disorders. Um, and the unresolved linked with uh, lots of different kinds of disorders. Borderline personality disorder, which is a kind of a, a fairly severe condition marked by a lot of instability of mood, rage, um, instability of self-image, sometimes uh, self-harm, suicidal behavior. That's been linked with the preoccupied and the unresolved states of mind primarily. And antisocial personality disorder, what we think of sociopaths, violent people, criminal people, um, is that tends to be linked with a dismissing or unresolved state of mind. And also, uh, some studies include a fifth category called cannot classify, which is where uh, there's a, such a mix of these different markers that uh, they don't fit any one particular category. And again, that sort of represents a kind of fracturing of the mind, um, and it's uh, particularly problematic. All right, in addition to these, there's been a bunch of self-report research, like using questionnaires with people like you, college students, 
um, about different attachment styles. How secure do you feel? How anxious do you feel? That kind of thing in your relationships. And it's yielded tons and tons of research. It's very interesting. It usually matches up fairly well with theory. Um, secure attachment, again, is promoting all kinds of great stuff. Attachment insecurity tends to create problems. But there's controversy over their validity. Uh, in other words, how valid is it to ask someone directly on a questionnaire about their attachment behavior um, when we're talking about instincts, things that are largely outside of consciousness? Um, the whole idea with the strange situation in the adult attachment interview is that we have to, we have to activate the attachment system in order to observe it. Because we can't rely on people's ability to just tell us, well, I'm secure, or I'm avoidant, or I'm dismissive. So there's controversy over that. But anyway, it still yields a lot of really interesting research, some of which I'll, I'll talk about later on when we get into the morality stuff. This is a model that's used for a lot of that research. Uh, the idea is that uh, a secure attachment style is one where there's low anxiety and low avoidance. In other words, I'm comfortable being, getting close to people, and I don't have much anxiety about rejection or abandonment. I'm confident that the person will be there for me. And you can see the other styles um, corresponding to different degrees of either uh, high avoidance or high anxiety. So looking across the childhood patterns and the adult patterns, you can kind of compare them this way. This is what has been observed in the strange situation. This is what we see on the, uh, the adult attachment interview. And these are the patterns that uh, emerge from all of this questionnaire-based research. All right. And all of these different types, these different patterns, again, reflect the internal working model. They reflect differences in the internal working model. Uh, and they entail different strategies for regulating my emotions and uh, how I conduct myself and how I perceive my relationships. Okay. Now, um, stability of these patterns. As I said, there's been many longitudinal studies that have been done following kids from infancy all the way up to your age and beyond. And what we know from these studies is that <clears throat> these attachment patterns are relatively stable over time. So if, if things in the family remain more or less the same, then these patterns that are formed early in life are likely to persist. If things change in the family markedly, then these patterns may change as well. Uh, so from, birth to, uh, from age one to age six, we see a very strong correlation of uh, attachment patterns observed at the, uh, across this five-year period. Correlation of 0.67 is very high in this kind of um, social scientific research. And then when you go across all of the studies that have been done from age one to college age, you see uh, a positive and statistically significant correlation of 0.27. It's not as strong, but it's still significant. And the fact that there's a time lapse of 18 or 19 years here, again, shows uh, the significance of you know, what's going on. It's difficult to get anything to correlate over that length of time uh, because so much changes in life. All right. So the thing that, that really promotes um, whether or not this, the pattern will be stable or not, as I said, is how much does the family change? So for instance, you could have a child who starts off uh, with a secure relationship with mom or dad, but then maybe the family goes through some hardships. Maybe there's physical illness. Uh, maybe there's a death in the family. Uh, maybe dad loses his job and becomes depressed and angry, and that creates marital problems. And then mom's preoccupied with that, so she's not responsive to me. Maybe mom and dad get a divorce, and that creates all kinds of turmoil in the family structure. 
all of these things then, you know, at time two may uh, translate into the child having a secure attachment at that time, all right? Conversely, you can have a child who comes into the world maybe in, in you know, fairly unstable circumstances, but over time, the family situation stabilizes, they, uh, they get a more stable living situation, the marriage improves, maybe the mental health or one or either parent improves, and the child may become more secure. Okay, so these things can change, but if the family structure remains the same, these patterns are likely to remain the same as well. Okay, now, we've seen, just uh, let me just review for a minute before we go on to the next part. We've, we've seen uh, the basics of attachment theory. We've seen these different patterns of attachment. We've talked about uh, how these different patterns lead to different types of development, uh, psychological development. One of the things that, that I did in my dissertation um, is I looked through the psychological literature for information on moral development uh, and looked for links between moral development and attachment security. And it turns out there are a number of different studies kind of scattered throughout the literature looking at sort of moral issues uh, from an attachment perspective. And as far as I know, nobody had really kind of pulled all that stuff together. So that's what I tried to do. And I want to go through some of it with you because, you know, as Catholics, I think this is really, um, you know, at the heart of what we're all about, getting back to this idea of learning how to love. Love is, all, is the, the center of the moral life as well, right? The great commandment to love God and love our neighbor. So how do our attachment experiences affect our ability to do that? There's been a number of, of interesting studies looking at early conscience development. There's a researcher in Iowa named Groznia Kochanska who's done some really fascinating work in this regard with uh, preschool age kids primarily. And across several studies, again summarizing here, what we see is that secure attachment and the kind of response of parenting that tends to go with that, uh, they tend to promote early conscience development. And it's been measured in different ways. Things like resistance to temptation or compliance with uh, commands, um, or even how these uh, four and five-year-olds begin to understand themselves as moral beings and how they respond to moral dilemmas. So in all these areas, secure attachment and the kind of responsive parenting that tends to go with it promote conscience development in these areas. There's also been um, some, a lot of research on forgiveness in psychology in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, led primarily by Robert Enright, who's a Catholic psychologist at University of Wisconsin. Uh, and there's been a little bit of research looking at this and correlating it with attachment. In studies using a self-report measure of attachment, like a questionnaire, we see that greater security tends to promote uh, the ability to forgive romantic partners, to forgive the self, and to forgive others. As far as I know, there's only been one study on forgiveness that's used the adult attachment interview. And it also found that the secure state of mind led to higher uh, scores on a forgiveness scale. In other words, higher ability to forgive and lower what's called pseudo-forgiveness. Pseudo-forgiveness, um, think like the dismissive state of mind. Oh, it was no big deal. I, I forgot about it. You know, it's, it was nothing. You know, trying to kind of dismiss or excuse or you know, forget about something hurtful that happened rather than to say, yeah, it really hurt. You know, what they did to me was wrong and, and it hurt me very much, but... Um, you know, I understand some of the things that they you know, were going through that maybe contributed to it, and um, I've been able to forgive and, and move on. And that's a more secure state of mind. 
There's also been a lot of really interesting research on empathy, compassion, and altruism, kind of the more uh, self-giving aspects of the commandment to love. What we find uh, in childhood is that children who have a background of secure attachment tend to show greater empathy for others. They tend to uh, be able to infer uh, people's uh, needs and feelings better through, uh, than other people. They also tend to respond to others more compassionately, what's called pro-social responding, and in general tend to get along with people better. We know that research with adults using the adult attachment interview uh, security tends to promote better caregiving, more responsiveness, response to the child's distress, response to my, my spouse's distress. And uh, also it tends to improve um, things like conflict management uh, and things like that in marriage. In the self-report research, attachment security has been linked with um, better um, romantic relationships, relationships that last longer, function better, and are more satisfying, suggesting again an ability to more mature ability to give and receive love. Whereas attachment insecurity tends to correlate with things like power struggles, manipulation, and withdrawal. But there's also been some very interesting experimental studies in this area. And what I mean by experimental studies is actually controlled experiments in a laboratory where they do some kind of manipulation. And one of the ways that, that uh, researchers have done this, this is kind of clever, uh, they use a method called priming. Priming is where you try to um, subtly induce a certain state of mind in the subject, okay? Uh, this can be um, done subliminally or it can be done overtly, but you're trying to induce a certain kind of state of mind. And so what they've done is created some techniques to try to induce uh, an, a secure state of mind temporarily in the laboratory so then they could see experimentally whether or not that makes people more altruistic, more compassionate, and so forth. So there's, they've done, done this several ways. Some of the more overt ones might be something like this, uh, reading a story about someone in distress uh, where someone came to their aid and it all worked out. Okay? So reading a story and thinking about that and responding to that can induce a kind of secure state of mind kind of vicariously. Or, have this, better yet, have the subject tell a story of their own where that happened in their life and write that out and spend some time thinking about that. That's another type of security priming they might use. Or um, they've used a number of subliminal ones. And these, it's hard to believe, but things like simply flashing the word secure on a screen so fast that the subjects didn't even notice it. Or the name of this, um, an attachment figure for this subject. So at the beginning of the, the, the experiment, they might ask them to list, you know, who are the people that you go to when you're in distress? You know, and I put my friend Bob and Joe and Dad or whatever. And so in this study, doing other things, they'll flash Bob up on the screen real quick, or Joe. Uh, and I won't even notice it because it's too fast, but it's there. So these are subliminal security primes. And it turns out they actually work. Um, in experiments where they've done this, they have found that uh, priming a person's uh, security uh, leads to uh, greater ratings on empathy and compassion, whether the rating themselves or whether an observer, an objective observer behind a screen is observing them. Also, it increases the person's ability to recall uh, empathy-related memories. And I think most interesting of all, they've actually shown experimentally that it increases willingness to help someone in distress. So one of the ways they did this 
as, uh, again, you, you put the person through one of these priming scenarios uh, where you're trying to prime for a secure state of mind. And then you bring the person into another room and what they, what they encounter when they come into the room is the experimenter interacting with another person uh, who has his hands in a bucket of ice water. And he's saying, oh, it's so cold, it hurts, I've got to stop, I've got to stop. And the experimenter is saying, no, we have to continue the study, we have to continue the study. Uh, and the person's moaning and going on about how much it hurts. And so then the experimenter turns to the real subject and says, well, would you take his place so we can continue the study? So that's the test. How willing is this person to take on this other person's distress? The stranger, they don't know who they are. Um, all they know is that they're in pain and, uh, you know, I'm in a situation where I could help. And it turns out that those people who had been primed, even subliminally, by just flashing a word on a screen, were more likely to step into that person's shoes and take on their distress um, than people who were not primed. Okay? So this shows very strongly with experimental evidence that attachment security, whether it's something that we carry with us as a trait or whether it's something that's you know, momentary, a, a state that we happen to be in right now, uh, tends to promote a greater ability and willingness to care for others. So going back to those instincts of attachment and caregiving, the more secure I feel, the more that frees me up to respond to the other person's distress. So it's hard for me to be a caregiver if my attachment needs aren't relatively met. See, if, if I'm feeling insecure, my instincts are, are prompting me to do what I need to do to feel more secure before I can go out of myself to care for somebody else. But if I feel secure, then I can forget about that for a while and I can respond to this person. Anyway, that's what this research is showing and I think it's very powerful. Okay, now kind of for the dark side. Um, there's been a lot of research on violence and aggression, and as you would expect, it tends to go with attachment insecurity. Um, I won't go through this in great detail. Um, the basic point is there. I will mention this last, uh, this last piece on here. Um, looking at relationship violence, like um, among boyfriends and girlfriends, or uh, spouses, people living together, um, you see attachment insecurity leading to uh, increased risk of violence in these relationships, and it comes up in one of two ways. One is violence to gain proximity, and the other to get away. So the person who is more avoidant, for instance, uh, they're in a conflict, and it's getting heated, and their um, attachment style is to turn away when in distress. So they feel a strong need to get away and to not talk about this and to cool down. And so they need to get away. They want to separate, they want to go away and be by themselves. Well, sometimes if the other person pursues them, you get a violent reaction. The person may use violence to create space in the relationship. Stop following me, leave me alone. On the other hand, sometimes you see a person who has high in attachment anxiety, who's afraid to, to lose the, the person use violence to hold on to them. I'm not going to let you leave. I'm going to block the door. I'm going to hold on to you. You're not going to leave me. And in my clinical work, I've seen it both ways. I've seen both sides of this. All right. So now, getting into the more interesting stuff, sexual behavior. All right. Most of this research has been done with, with self-report research uh, questionnaires. Uh, and typically what it shows is that people who 
report feeling more secure in their attachment relationships tend to use sexuality to express love in committed relationships. They tend to show greater exclusivity in their sexual partners. In other words, they're more, uh, they tend to be more monogamous and more faithful. They tend to report higher enjoyment of their sexuality and uh, show improved communication about sexual issues with their partners. Attachment avoidance, conversely, has been linked to higher rates of things like masturbation, infidelity, and casual sex. All these things have a kind of impersonal quality to them. Sex for the sake of sex rather than for the sake of a relationship. Whereas attachment anxiety has been linked more with worries about things like sexual performance. Am I doing a good job? Is he or she happy with me? Uh, and fears of losing one's partner. And there's an interesting interaction here with gender. Uh, young uh, women or girls who are high in attachment anxiety tend to begin having sex at a younger age. And the reason for that, um, theoretically at least, is that they're afraid of being rejected and abandoned. So if the boyfriend wants it, they're more likely to, ca to cave in. Whereas um, young men and boys who are high in attachment anxiety tend to be older when they begin having sex, largely because the male, most of the time, is the initiator. And so if you have a male who's very anxious about rejection or abandonment, they may be a too worried about that to initiate because they don't want to get turned down. Um, so you see an interesting interaction here with gender. Okay. Again, there's been some priming studies here. And what we see from this experimental research is that the more secure people feel, the more, time, the more they're invested in what researchers call this long-term mating strategy, which we might just think of as um, you know, sort of long-term monogamy, of, of wanting to invest in a stable long-term relationship and not just sleep around. Whereas people who are um, more in an avoidant state of mind tend to focus more on the short-term, uh, sort of sex that's convenient and fun as opposed to meaningful and lasting. Um, we see, you know, increased rates of sexual coercion uh, in individuals with attachment insecurity. And there's been some studies with rapists, for instance, showing that they're more likely to be of the dismissive avoidance sort. And a couple of studies, although this is a little bit inconsistent, linking pedophilia with um, the fearful avoidant kind of style. All right, we're almost done for tonight, so let me just uh, wrap a few things up here. Addiction. Addiction is another area that I, I looked at when trying to understand how attachment might impact the moral life. And from a, a certain psychological point of view, you can see it, addiction as an attempt at self-repair. The, the addictive substance or activity, whatever it is, actually functions a lot like an attachment figure. I need it to feel secure. I need it to help me with my distress. I need it to calm down. I, I need it to celebrate when something goes well. Um, that's how many addictions operate. And that's also much like that circle that I put on the board earlier. So, as I said, the addictive substance or activity can kind of be a surrogate attachment. There's some, not a lot of research in this area, but some research shows that attachment insecurity is linked with um, greater rates of substance abuse. Um, also, um, some uh, research on gambling behavior. Uh, adolescents with difficulties in the areas of trust and openness with their parents are more likely to get into gambling behavior. Uh, and men who are struggling with sexual addiction are also more likely to uh, report 
uh, insecure attachment in their relationships. So the basic conclusion here, although it's still somewhat preliminary because the research is small, is that attachment security seems to protect from addiction. And that's important in the moral life because even if we think of addiction as a mental disorder uh, or illness or something like that, it has huge implications for my ability to use my freedom to respond to the, to the, the vocation to love. You know, addiction impairs my freedom and the moral life requires me to use my freedom uh, to pursue the good. And so that's the, the implication here. All right, how about my relationship with God? There's been a lot of research in this area, and it's, been, it's really fascinating. Um, I'm going to try to summarize it as, as briefly as I can. Um, I'm certainly happy to take questions, and I can point you to more resources if you want to learn more. But in general, uh, what we find in the self-report studies of attachment is that uh, security tends to be related to um, a certain kind of religiosity that involves slowly being um, formed or socialized into a particular uh, religious belief. And once the person adopts it, it becomes stable. It's part of who they are. Whereas, um, well, I'll, I'll get to it in a few minutes. Insecurity tends to promote a more of a, um, an unstable type of religiosity. It's based more on emotion and uh, people are more likely to have a sudden conversion, but also more likely to leave or change their faith later on. Attachment security tends to promote greater faith maturity. It also seems to correlate with viewing God as loving, uh, and it also has been correlated with uh, more contemplative or colloquial types of prayer, more prayer of the heart, you might say. Insecurity, as I said, um, is linked with uh, having sudden conversions uh, and that kind of thing, but also the, the likelihood of turning to God out of emotional distress. However, when you break that apart a little bit, specifically avoidance has been correlated with turning away from God in distress and anxiety. Uh, attachment anxiety seems to correlate with lots of petitionary prayer. Please, please, please help me. Please, 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 please. Kind of like the child who can't seem to get calmed down. Also, there's a link between insecure attachment and greater involvement in the New Age, which is really interesting. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Uh, one really interesting study that I want to mention to you uh, was conducted with some kids around age kindergarten, first, or first grade, about five to seven. And they used a, a procedure called the separation anxiety test. And they also developed a projective test uh, to look at the child's perception of God's closeness. So the child had a, a, like, a it's like a felt board that the, the experimenter was interacting with the child using this felt board to tell a story. So they have a figure that they would stick on there. Here's Jimmy, you know, and Jimmy's playing. Here's his bicycle and this and that, blah, 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 blah. And they give the child this uh, kind of generic religious symbol. And, and here's God. So it's kind of the God symbol. And they'd ask the child um, to place the God symbol on the felt board uh, in response to a certain story prompt. So the first prompt might just be a, a play kind of prompt. You know, Jimmy's having a good time. He's doing this and that and the other thing. He's playing ball and he's happy. Now, where's God? And the child then puts the God symbol on the board. And the experimenters would then actually measure the distance. Well, where's God in relation to Jimmy? Okay? And they would record that. Then they'd give him another scenario. Okay, Jimmy's playing. Something scary happens. He hurts himself or a stranger shows up. Now, where's God? Okay? And as it turns out, the kids who were secure in their relationships with their parents, put the God symbol close to Jimmy when he's distressed, 
but further away when he wasn't. Okay? Think back to that circle that I showed you. He's there when I need him, but when everything's okay, he gives me space to explore and to use my freedom. Right? So these kids already at this age had this kind of internalized sort of subconscious understanding of God, God's closeness in times of distress, but also his um, generosity in allowing us to use our freedom. As far as I know, there have been two studies using the adult attachment interview looking at uh, spirituality. And uh, they showed that um, experience of parental love, you know, rating my, my parents as particularly loving, is related to seeing God as loving and that more stable, um, uh, gradual type of religiosity that I talked about. The unresolved status correlated with new age spirituality. Remember, unresolved is like the adult version of that disorganized attachment you see in kids. And the dissociative quality of like, you know, being disconnected from certain mental processes and fearful of attachment figures might explain why people would be drawn to new age spirituality, which is basically personless. It's a personless kind of spirituality. So there's no attachment figure for me to be afraid of. And in a study of um, 30 Italian Catholic priests and religious compared to a matched group of laity, they found, first of all, very high rates of secure attachment, very few unresolved, and the ratings of uh, uh, security tended to be correlated again with images of God as loving. So let me just summarize this last bit. Attachment security promotes conscience development in early childhood. Attachment security aids our ability to give and receive love, like the uh, compassion altruism studies. It also helps us view sexuality as an expression of love and promotes long-term self-giving as opposed to uh, short-term casual relationships. It also helps us, uh, attachment security helps us to restrain our aggressive urges and it protects us from addiction. In terms of our relationship with God, it helps us to see him as loving and form a stable relationship with him. And, that, and security in my relationship with God and my relationship with other people promotes my overall mental and interpersonal health. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.